Well, thank you, Duncan, and thank you, team, for leading us this morning. To those of you who call South Shore home, and to those of you who are watching online, but maybe not part of our church family on a regular basis, so glad that you're all here. Welcome, and uh, thanks for being here with us today. It's going to be a great day today. I hope you have your Bibles as we are in our second message in our brand new series in Colossians, Jesus Over All. You can turn there right now. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. So haven't you found that in life when you have clarity about something, uh, you know you know what you're supposed to do, that things go much better? So just think about an Ikea piece of furniture. I bought one of those recently. You dump all of the pieces and all the parts out on the floor, and you know it's, it's a lot. And uh, you know what you want it to look like, but you're not necessarily sure how to get there. And as you're dumping everything out, what's missing is they forgot to put the instructions in, right? So without the instructions, uh, it's not going to be a good day. You're going to be there for a long time figuring out how to build this thing, and you're probably going to have lots of pieces left over. So when you have clarity about what you're supposed to do, life goes a lot better. And here we are on Sunday morning as a church gathered this way, and uh, we're going to do a clarity check. The clarity check is this. Why are we here? Uh, What is life all about? Getting clarity on that. And in a word, it's really simple. Here's the instructions. Here's the instruction manual. In a word, clarity. Why are we here? What are we here for? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Why do we live? What's the reason for living? Jesus is the reason for everything. That's clarity on who we are and what we're supposed to be doing and why we exist. 18th century evangelist George Whitfield had these words about talking about Christ and his importance. He says this. This is a great call for us. He says this, make much of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are many things of which we may easily make too much in our ministry. Give them too much attention. Think about them too much. But listen, this is what he says. He says, but we can never make too much of Christ. We can never make too much of Christ. Today, however high our view of Jesus is, it is not high enough. J.B. Phillips famously wrote this phrase that became the title of his book in 1955, and here's what he said. He says, your God is too small, right? Our God is too small. The God that we serve, that we worship, that we've been singing about is high and exalted and mighty and omnipotent and omniscient, and our view of God falls short of who he is. And however rich our understanding of the deity of Christ is, it's not rich enough. However big our view of God is, it's not big enough. And all of the writings of the wise and all the songs of the saints written will never exhaust the glories of Jesus Christ. Our God is anything but small, right? His power is unstoppable. His greatness is unsearchable. His love is undeniable. Christ is the one who is exalted over all. We've been singing about that. So South Shore, here is our clarity today. Here's our clarity about why we exist. We exist as a church. We exist as a church to magnify Jesus Christ. You know, all that we do and say, our treasure is the treasure of Jesus. We are going to make much of him who is exalted over all. That's clarity. That's why we exist. That's why God made us. And the exalted glory of Jesus Christ is at the center, at the heart of the letter to the Colossians. Many of you 
are actually studying it in Bible studies. We are thrilled that we have over 50 people. And as Duncan said earlier, there's still room. We're just going into week two. So if you're not part of it, you need to jump into that. No paragraph in the New Testament contains more concentrated doctrine about the deity of Christ than this one. Here we are, right in this paragraph, not only in the book, but in a specific paragraph, in these verses that we're in right today. Well, if you are with us last week, I mentioned briefly that Colossians was written as a response to Christological error and false teachings. It's a big problem. As soon as that starts happening, the church goes crazy. Well, Paul writes to turn believers away from getting up, getting caught up in this error, from getting turned aside through this false teaching, through myths, and we're going to find out as the weeks come just in terms of aspects of asceticism. And he was writing to awaken in them, to reawaken in them, this knowledge of an exalted and reigning and supreme and preeminent Christ. That's the purpose of the writing. Listen to what Calvin says about the very thing that the enemy tries to do. He writes, There is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to obscure Christ. Because he knows that by this means the way is opened up for every kind of falsehood. There is an attack on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Satan is always attempting to turn our hearts, to turn our eyes, to turn our understanding away from Christ and to make him into something that he is not, far less than he is. Colossians says, "Uh uh-uh, we're coming back to the exalted one. We're going to lift up the name of Jesus. We're going to see how great our God is today. And as Paul is writing this letter, he is bringing them back, the church, to their true and real and living and exalted Christ and the real and the true gospel of Christ that they had learned from Epaphras. This is what they learned, this is what they were taught, and this is what Paul said, continue on in this teaching, continue on, go on in it, and grow up into maturity. Church, that's our pursuit. Our pursuit is Christ. Our pursuit is Christ and growing up into maturity, into knowing him. All the truths found in Colossians find themselves united and linked by the exalted, preeminent Christ. Here's the key verse in Colossians. We find it in 3.11. Paul writes, Christ is all and in all. He's the center of it all. No one can fully grasp the preeminence of Christ. I spent a lot of time this week in commentaries, reading, praying, thinking, writing, And after a week of study, I do not fully comprehend the wonder of it. And with the short amount of time that we're going to spend this morning, all that I can hope that we will do is dip our toes in this ocean, this endless ocean, and be utterly in awe and be amazed and just be face down in adoration before the one Jesus Christ who is our creator and our redeemer, our savior, and our king. This text before us in chapter 1, in verses 15 to 20, we're going to look at it in a second. It's an amazingly rich, majestic poetry. It's, it's a hymn of praise. It's a catalog of 15 truths about Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, this is the deep end of the theological pool. This is full of rich, foundational, theological truths about the one who is the great I am. I'm telling you, these verses uh, are going to take us more than 40 minutes 
this is enough material to cover a whole course, a whole seminary course, learning about Jesus. Well, in this text, Paul is making the argument that Christ is the preeminent one. Now, we need to stop here for a moment and clarify what we mean by preeminent. It's not a word that we use typically in our day-to-day speech. Here's what preeminent means. It means surpassing all others. It means peerless, supreme, more important or more powerful than all others. That's what Paul is saying about Christ. So, Paul is boldly declaring that Jesus is the supreme one. He is peerless. Christ surpasses all others. He is the preeminent one. When we talk about preeminence in this message, when you see it in the text, you're going to see the exalted nature of Jesus Christ, that he surpasses everyone else. He is without equal. He is so highly exalted that we can't even imagine. And this morning, we're going to reverently walk through the truths conveyed in these verses and see the glories of Christ. Let's stop and ask for his help. We need it. I need it. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord for his help? Lord, already we have been singing of the glories of Jesus Christ. Lord over creation, Son of God and Son of Man, His name exalted over all. Lord, we need Your help today to see the glories of Your Son. Lord, I need Your help to speak rightly of the glories of Jesus from this text. Lord, I'm asking today that You would give us spiritual wisdom and understanding that we might grow in our knowledge of the greatness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and that you would stir up in us affections corresponding to who you are. Lord, I pray today that by your Spirit at work, you'd open our eyes, you'd open our ears and our hearts, and Lord, in doing this, would you be glorified? In Jesus' matchless name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Let's take our Bibles now and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read from verses 15 to 20. Follow along with me as I read these wonderfully rich verses about Christ. Hear now the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The text that I just read breaks down nicely into two sections. The first section, verses 15 to 17, we're going to call them this. Christ is the Lord of creation. If you're taking notes, there's your heading. Christ is the Lord of creation. The second part, the second section, is found in verses 18 to 20, where we see Christ as presented as the Lord of redemption. So in the first section, he's the Lord of creation. In the second section, he is the Lord of 
redemption. Now these two sections draw a parallel between God who is the creator in the first section and God who is the redeemer in the second section. Christ, the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, is the one the Colossians know as their redeemer. Christ is not merely one of a number of spiritual powers that the Gnostics, that the false teachers were trying to present. He's not just one of. He is preeminent over natural creation. He is preeminent over the new creation, the church. This is what he has done. He is the Lord of redemption. He is the Lord of creation. Now, our approach this morning is going to be to walk through this text, to examine the truths of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and then at the end we will ask how we should respond to the truths found in these verses. So let's look at the first one. Christ is the Lord of creation. What I want to do is give you a summary of this whole section, these next couple of verses, three verses, 15, 16, and 17. Here it is. This first section proclaims that Christ is the image of God, he's the firstborn over all creation, and he is the agent of creation, and it concludes with the exalted affirmation that all things hold together in him. Look at verse 15. Paul begins by saying, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Now Paul is beginning this section with an elaboration of what he has just finished saying in verses 13 and 14, where he started to praise the work and the person of Christ. In those verses 13 and 14, just have a glance with your eyes. We see that Christ is the beloved Son and the Redeemer. And now that beloved Son and Redeemer is called the image of the invisible God. Well, we need to ask ourselves, what does this mean? What does it mean that he is the image of the invisible God? The phrase carries with it, the idea of representation and manifestation. Let me me spell it out. Jesus is a reflection that shares the reality that he reveals. I'll say that again. Jesus is a reflection that shares the reality he reveals. In other words, he is the perfect image, the perfect likeness, the perfect revelation of God. In Christ, Why is this important? The unseen, the invisible God, what? Becomes visible, and he becomes known to us. We see that in John 1.18. John says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, right? We can't see him, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Christ has made visible, has revealed to us this unknown, invisible, unseen God. Jesus has made the Father known. You and I can know God through Christ. He's revealed him to us. Now, nature and creation reveals much about God. It reveals his existence. It reveals his power and his wisdom. Last night, I had a chance to look at a a sunset around 5.15 in the afternoon. It was kind of this beautiful, pinky pinky, peachy sky, and just, you know, showed again the glory and the power of God. But creation doesn't reveal the deeper essence of who God is. It's only in Jesus Christ that the invisible God who lives in unapproachable light is revealed perfectly. Christ reveals the Father perfectly. Christ brings clarity to the foggy notions that we have 
of God the Father. Now, David Garland, commentator, writes this, which is a great summary of this section that we're in right now. Listen to this. He says, in Christ, we see who God is, creator and redeemer. We see what God is like, a God of mercy and love, and we see what God does. One who sends his son to rescue people from the dominion of darkness and brings about the reconciliation of all creation through his death on a cross. What he's saying is we see who God is, we see what God is like, and we see what God has done. This is what God wants us to know, church, who he is and what he has done and what he is like. And it's all found in the treasure of the preeminent one, Jesus Christ. It is him we adore, it is him we stand in awe of and are amazed by. John said again in his gospel, whoever has seen me, this is Jesus speaking, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Christ is God's full self-disclosure. Jesus is God incarnate. He is the image of God, and he has always been that way before the incarnation. From eternity past, in his life incarnate walking on the earth, and to eternity future, Jesus Christ perfectly mirrored and mirrors the character of his Father, and we can know God through his Son. Christ is the embodiment of deity. He is God in human form and flesh. Amazing, amazing. We talk about these truths, but just imagine that you lived in the first century, and you saw Jesus Christ walking and talking and healing and teaching. And if you had the understanding that we have now, you would say all of the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily. There is the all-powerful, eternal God living fully, representing fully this eternal, awesome, all-powerful God in a human body. This is Jesus Christ, the one we love and serve. Hebrews 1 speaks of Christ in the same way. Nathan read it earlier. I'll read it again, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Christ possesses all of the essential qualities of deity. In His life and His ministry, He faithfully displayed the righteousness, the purity, the mercy, the love, and the divine power of God. And when you think of this phrase, image of God, one of the things you should think of is what we just finished reading not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, in Genesis chapter one, you should think of Adam, who was made in the image of God. Adam was made in the image of God. God made Adam to represent or to image him, to image God in all of creation. Adam was to image God by ruling over the earth, subduing it, being fruitful and multiplying. He was to rule over God's creation in holiness and obedience. Well, we know how that went. Now, Jesus Christ is also called the last Adam. All right? Adam was made in the image of God. Christ is called the last Adam. And where the first Adam failed to honor God, to obey God, to represent God, 
because of his sin, listen, Christ did not fail God. Jesus Christ is the perfect representative of everything that God is because Jesus himself is God. Jesus did not fail, and he will not fail. Adam failed. Christ was perfect. Christ did for us what we could never do. Christ is who we could never be. He is the last Adam. And therefore, we can see God in Christ, and we can know God in Christ. And through Christ, we are being, listen, we are being renewed, we are being transformed into the same image of our Creator. Not only can you see God and know God in Jesus Christ, if you are in Him and He is in you, 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says that we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory by the Lord who is the Spirit. God is working a work in you to make you like Christ, transforming you into the image of God. Wow. You see what he's doing? He's restoring. He is renewing. He's making us to be like him. Amen. Well, the next thing we see in this this section is that Christ is the preeminent one. He's the preeminent one. Remember what that was talking about? Surpassing all others, peerless, supreme. Why? Look at verse 15, second part. He is the firstborn of all creation. Christ is the preeminent one because he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, when you hear the word firstborn, we immediately think the oldest or the firstborn child, right? So the firstborn in our family is our oldest Well, this appears to be a problem for us as we hear this verse. We think, hmm, does this mean that Jesus was created? Is what Paul's saying that Jesus had a starting point? Well, misunderstood and misrepresented, this verse has been used by some cults to teach that Jesus is not fully God. As a matter of fact, in the fourth century, there was a heresy called Arianism. It was proposed and presented and and led by Arius, who opposed the doctrine, the orthodox doctrine of the Incarnation. And what he taught was that at one point, the Son was created by the Father, and that before that time of his creation, the Son did not exist. That's a heresy. Some cults today still use that. That's not what Paul is saying. So is Jesus Christ fully God? Yes, he is. We declare, yes, he is. The Bible uses the term firstborn in different ways. Now, here's what we know. What we know is that Paul isn't saying that Jesus was created or born of God since what? The very next verse says what? Look at, look at your Bibles. Look at the very next verse. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. The very next verse says that Christ created all things. So, he can't be at the same time the creator of all things and one who is created. So obviously the firstborn doesn't mean what we naturally tend to think it means. In the Bible, this word firstborn means place or status. What it refers to is of first importance or first rank, not necessarily the oldest in the family. I'll give you an example. Israel in the Old Testament in Exodus 4.22 is called the firstborn of God. Also, We see this in Psalm 89, verse 27, speaking of King David. And in this passage, David was referred to as God's firstborn king. Well, we know that David wasn't, I'll I'll read the verse, and I will make him the firstborn 
the highest of the kings of the earth. So this is God's declaration of David, who was not the oldest in his family. In fact, he was the eighth. He was the last of all the brothers. We know he wasn't even the first king of Israel, because Saul was the first king. So firstborn can't mean the oldest, and it can't mean the first. It means something else. It means he's first rank, he's first place, he's first of importance, he's first in status. He has the highest place. That's what firstborn means. Jesus Christ is the highest of the kings of the earth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no time when Christ did not exist. He is firstborn. Christ outranks all things in creation. This position of firstborn distinguishes him from everything else in all of creation. Everything else. Because he is supreme over them. What we need to see here what Paul wants to show us is that Christ is preexistent to creation and sovereign over all of the created order. He is preeminent. That's a lot to take in. I told you we were in the deep end of the pool. Our minds are stretched, our hearts are pulsing, thinking through the implications and the response already. This is Jesus Christ. Well, now let's look at verse 16. Follow along with me. For, Paul writes, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, in the beginning, the God who made everything, it says, in the beginning, created the universe, ex nihilo, it's a Latin phrase which means out of nothing. This means that before the universe was created, nothing else existed beside the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He created all things out of nothing. Now, if I give you a tree or a plank, uh, you could create this pulpit, right? You create something out of something, You take a piece of wood and you can create a pulpit. You can create a bookshelf. That would be pretty impressive. If you made a pulpit or a whole set of bookshelves, that would be pretty impressive. But only God can create wood out of nothing. Only God can create trees out of nothing. Wood that didn't exist, God speaks it into existence. This is the work of our God. This is his power and his wisdom and his might. Now all things here refers to the entire universe. Everything that you see, the material, the spiritual, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, he says whether thrones or dominions, rulers, positions, authority, Christ is created, he has created all of this, and he's over all of this, because he is before it and he is the reason for it. Now, while God the Father was the one who initiated the act of creation, we know that it was by Christ It was through the means of the involvement of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that all of creation came about. So here's Jesus walking on the streets of Jerusalem. He was the one who spoke trees into existence and planets and laws of gravity and everything that there is. John writes of this work of the Son of God in John 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the agent of creation. He made it all. 
He made you, he made me. Out of nothing, Christ created the spiritual creation, the ranks of angels, and everything in all of the material universe. Hope your minds are being stretched. I hope your hearts are being stretched. So let me stretch your minds a little bit here. Consider the created order, the universe. Consider the outer edge of our solar system as you think about big and vast and wide and mind-boggling. I remember taking physics in high school. You just begin to get a little bit of this in astronomy. Our solar system is over 21 trillion kilometers away, just our solar system, in a universe that is estimated to be in diameter 93 billion light years. That's the distance that light would travel. Speed of light's pretty fast. I think it's, if I remember correctly, 186,000 miles, kilometers per second. It's pretty fast. How long it would take light to travel 93, or how far it would go in 93 billion light years is what we scientists see as the expanse of our universe. And from that mind-boggling expanse and all of the matter and all of the material that exists in the greatness to what we know on earth as over one million species of insects. Did you know there was one million species of insects? Mosquitoes are enough for me, actually, but there's, there's a whole lot more. Over a million species of insects. And even beyond that, smaller to the tiniest particles, to viruses, to things that we can't see, to protons and neutrons and electrons and all of the, the sub-particles in matter. From the smallest to the grandest, this is the creation of Jesus Christ. This is his power. This is his wisdom. And all of these are the results of his omnipotence and his wisdom, his will, and his love. All of these things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all of them, from the biggest to the smallest, are under his command. No wonder that the wind and the waves, no wonder that the demons and the diseases no wonder that the governments and the galaxies obey Christ. The earthly rulers who govern, why do they govern? They have power because Christ grants them the power and they do his bidding. All of creation does the bidding of the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, we don't need to fear planets falling on us. We don't need to fear chaos or confusion because Christ is Lord over all. That's what Paul is declaring. And because Christ created the universe, it has purpose and meaning. And we, as the highest of his creation, created in his image, we have purpose and meaning too because we are made in his image. The purpose that we have is to bring glory to himself. Look at verse 17. Here's what it says next about Christ. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in this beautiful, vast, and microscopic universe, Christ is also, Paul is telling us, the sustainer. He's the sustainer. Hebrews 1.3, again, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. We read that a minute ago. And listen, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He holds it all together. He is as it were, the divine glue that holds everything together, that keeps everything from blowing apart, from turning into chaos. He, Jesus Christ, is the bond of cohesion. He's the cosmic force, the atomic force that holds every atom together. 
This is our God. This is our Savior. This is the preeminent one, our King. And so from the big details to the smallest, from the grandest to the most intricate, Jesus keeps the universe existing and functioning in the way that it is supposed to, the way that it was intended to function. Christ is the one who sustains the entire universe and sustains us in whatever challenging season we find ourselves in. You know, I think of that phrase, he holds the world in his hands, he holds us in his hands. If God can, can hold the world in his hands and control the planets, he holds you and can watch over your life and bless you and keep you. Amen? Amen. The Son of God right now, this second, is holding everything together. You and me are the eyes that we see with, the ears that we hear with, the bodies that we live in. Why are we seeing and hearing and alive? It's because Christ holds us together. Jesus right now is exercising active, purposeful control over all things, over seasons and viruses, over governments, over the world economy, over his church. He's holding it all together. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to be afraid. He holds together the city that we live in, the province, the country, the continent, the planet, and the whole universe. Everything exists, and they will continue to exist because of him. If Christ ceased his work of sustaining and holding us together, then everything except for the Trinity would cease to exist. Everything was created through Christ. Everything exists in Christ and is sustained by him and for him. And if he holds it all together, he will sustain us in times of difficulty. Amen. This is what he does and this is who he is. Here's the first thing. He is preeminent. Christ is the Lord of creation. Here's the second thing. Christ is the Lord of redemption. We see that in this next section, verses 18 to 20. The first part of the Christ exalting him praises him as the agent of creation and creation's goal. Paul established his lordship over the world, and now in the second section, he's going to establish Christ's preeminence, his lordship over the church, because he is the Lord of redemption. The second section brings this together. The all-powerful creator came down to earth where his blood flowed from the body of one fully God and fully man who was cursed and hung on a cross. The preeminent one, the supreme creator and sustainer of all things is also the crucified and the resurrected Lord. Jesus Christ who created everything, Paul will teach us, is the Lord of redemption and the Lord of the church. The destinies of creation, all that God has made, and the destiny of the church, the new creation, are bound together. How so? Because God's purposes for all of creation are wrapped up in his redemptive purposes for the church. Did you hear that? I'll say that again. God's purposes for all creation are wrapped up in his redemptive purposes for the church. All that God is doing in redemptive history is to make a people for himself and bring a people who love him, who are redeemed by him, into glory. And that's what we're going to see in this next section. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He entered this world in order to do this, to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth by means of his death. Let's look at this final section. Verse 18, read it with me. He is the head 
of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The second section begins by proclaiming that Christ is the head of the body, which we know as the church. So when you see that phrase, the head of the body, the body is referring to the church. It's who we are, the believers. Now there's a definite parallelism here in the first and the second sections. We see he is firstborn. We see words like by him and through him. Really these, these two sections are, are paralleling. Now we know that the church is not a building. We know that the church is, however, the living body of Jesus Christ. It's all of those who love him with Christ as our head, our supreme ruler. Those who believe the gospel, those who trust in Christ for salvation, we make up his body. We're the church. If you trust in Christ today, if you know him, you are part of the body of Christ. Jesus is the supreme ruler over the cosmos, and he is the supreme ruler over the church. We exist to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ and his word. He is the head, the beginning, the firstborn. And these are all affirmations that Christ is sovereign over creation and the world and of this new creation, which is us, his church, his body. Ultimately, the church doesn't exist only to serve the body of believers, but to serve the head. The church exists to serve Jesus Christ for his cosmic, eternal, redemptive purposes. That'll give you a reason to live. There's a reason to get up in the morning, believer, that we are part of the body of Christ that is serving God's eternal, redemptive, cosmic purposes for his glory, right? There's clarity, there's the instructions. And the head of the body is the firstborn from among the dead. We see that phrase, firstborn, again. We saw that in verse 15. So what does it mean this time, right? We said it didn't mean that Jesus was the first one created, What does firstborn from the dead mean? Well, here's what it means. Jesus is the first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. He's the first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. The grave couldn't hold him, and his resurrection ensures our resurrection because we are in him. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. In his work of incarnation, in his death, and in his Resurrection, what is he doing? He's acting for humanity. He is acting in our place. He's acting on behalf of those who believe in him because he represents all of humanity. Let me bring this practically home. Simply put, because he lives, we will live. Because he was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. Because he rose, we will rise. He is the first of all who will follow him into resurrection life and into eternity. Brothers and sisters, that's your hope because we are in Christ and he is the firstborn from the dead. He gives life and strength to the body, to the church, to us members of the body every day. We saw that in our Colossians series and in our prayer series already. And so by his death and resurrection, what did he do? Jesus defeated sin and death. This is the gospel. His death and resurrection were all part of God's divine purpose to accomplish this end. What's the end? It was the reconciling of all things to himself. God's rescue mission, verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and, listen, and through him to reconcile to himself, to bring together all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of his cross. Paul writes the same idea in 2.9. Flip over in your page. Colossians 2.9 says this. For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Christ, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What does this mean, the fullness of God? It means the sum total of all God's divine power and attributes dwelt in Christ, dwells in Christ, were in Christ as he walked on earth. Mind-boggling. The fullness of God means that Christ, everything that constitutes God as God, is in Christ. The fullness, this fullness that Paul is writing of here dwells in Christ because he is as man, fully God, fully God, fully man. Fullness wasn't added to the incarnate Christ, that's who he was. It was part of his essential being of his very nature, and so he perfectly revealed God's word and wisdom and power and glory. In verse 20, we read that he did this to reconcile the world to himself. Now, we've talked about the vastness of creation. We've talked about the exalted place that we have created in the image of God. And listen, everything was created by God in Christ, but the the world, this perfect world, was broken, it was sin-soaked, and it needed reconciliation. And the first cosmic, altering, catastrophic sin by our forefather and foremother, Adam and Eve, what they did was they declared war on God. The first sin of disobedience declared war on God. And all of us likewise are fallen beings. We have lined up with our rebel parents and spiritual powers and followed in their tyranny against the living God. That's what sin is. We, like them, are all justly under God's wrath. Why did reconciliation need to happen? Because of the fall, because of sin. If it were up to us to reconcile, if, if you had to do something or I had to do something to make myself right with God, we would be absolutely hopeless. What do we have to offer that will affect recon- reconciliation with the holy God? Is there some way that we could please or appease God? Can I say sorry enough times? Can I give enough money? Can I serve enough? Uh, Can I promise to do better? We cannot. There's nothing that we can do because we are separated. We are alienated. We are, the Bible says, dead in our sins. And we are unable to do anything ourselves to please God. So here's the dilemma of all history. How can a holy God be reconciled to sinful humanity? What is going to happen to bridge this gulf, to heal the breach, to cleanse the sin? Can God just sweep it under the rug? Can he turn a blind eye and forget that it exists? Can he compromise his standards and forget his laws and his justice, his holiness? No. God must be consistent with who he is and his justice and maintain his holy law. So is there a remedy? Was there a hope for this broken, sin-soaked humanity? How could forgiveness be granted when all of humanity was guilty of sin and deserving of eternal punishment away from the presence of God forever because of their resisting the rule and the love of their God? Though we have declared 
holy war on God. God did not declare war on us. But in grace, God sought us out. And he provided a garment to cover and clothe the sins of Adam and Eve. And that was a picture of a temporary covering that would speak to as a foreshadow that which would be ultimately given, the clothing, the covering of the perfect sacrifice who died in our place to cover us and to clothe us in his righteousness because he made payment with his own life and death for the sin of the world. And because Jesus is God, he could do what no one else could do. God in Christ has done for us what we could never do. He reconciled us sinners to his Father, a holy God. That was achieved when Jesus took on the flesh of his creation. He endured the agony of the cross. He shed his blood as the perfect once and for all sacrifice for sin. And so, in this first section, we're talking about the heights of all power, Jesus as the preeminent one, the creating one, the head of the church, to what he did and what he suffered, taking the lowest place from the highest of glory and supremacy to the lowest of humiliation and shame on the cross. This is who your Redeemer is. This is what your Creator did. Christ's blood, you see that in verse 20, speaks of his death by violence, and the cross speaks of humility, humility and shame. This is what we deserve. We deserve damnation and destruction, but what Jesus in his mercy brings is rescue and reconciliation. Reconciliation is this work that God has done for us. It's a restoration to favor. It's the work accomplished by God for us, nothing we could do on our own. God makes it possible for a guilty sinner to be brought back into enjoyment of God's favor. This is what reconciliation is. This is what he did for us by the blood of the cross, by who he is, by what he's done. So brothers and sisters, this is the good news. This is the gospel. Our creator, our redeemer, brings us the good news and who he is. The good news is that because of what Christ has done, God is reconciling the world to himself. We in Jesus Christ are being delivered from darkness. We have been, we are being, we will be fully, finally delivered. And this hostility between God and us has been removed by Christ. Jesus Christ has taken care of all things. And so today, what do we do? We honor him who has done this. We worship him. We stand in awe and amazement of Christ, the preeminent one who has done this. And the climax of this hymn, these five verses of praise to Jesus Christ is this, that God used death, the ultimate and the immediate consequence of man's sinfulness in Genesis 3. He used death to make the atoning sacrifice for our sin and to make us right with God. The preeminent one is the Christ, the Lord of creation, and he is the Lord of redemption. As we conclude the message today, let me ask you this, how do we respond to this God, the preeminent one? Two things. First, be reconciled to God. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, your invitation is that God has done everything that you need to be in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing in your hands you will bring, nothing that you can do, simply to trust in Jesus Christ who died for you. Will you do that today? If you're watching and you don't know Christ, eternal life is given to you. 
Forgiveness is given to you by Christ. Be reconciled to God today. The second thing we see as response is worship and surrender. To worship him who is the Lord of all, to whom all praise belongs, Christ exalted over all. The Apostle Paul helps us here following 11 chapters of doctrine in Romans. He concludes with these words of doxology. Doxology is praise to God. Verse 33, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, right? Contemplating creation, contemplating redemption, he says, this is him, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. And in very similar words to what we've just been reading in Colossians, just a couple of verses later in Romans 11, verse 36, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. He's exploding in praise this declaration of worship. And we have been confronted with this indescribable magnitude of power and wisdom and glory in Christ and redemption. Jesus, our creator and redeemer, is the starting and the end of all creation, of all things. It's all for him. Everything is moving towards him. And oh, as it was said by Whitfield, oh, that we would make much of Christ, that you would make much of Christ in your life, that he would be your everything. Oh, South Shore, that we would make much of Christ. Oh, church, that we would make much of Christ, worshiping him who is preeminent. Why should Christ be first in our lives and in the church? Because Christ is all. Following Jesus means that we are all in, that he is first, that he is all. It means total commitment. Following Christ is not that Christ is part of our lives. He is our life. He is not just a piece, he is everything. Is he first in your life today? Is he first in your home? Is he first in your heart? Is he first in your family? Is he first in your marriage? Is he first in your pursuits? Is Christ first, is he Lord? He is Lord. Is he Lord of all in you? He is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, if he is first, if he is head, if he is preeminent, then worshiping him, surrendering to him, completely obeying him in everything, passionately serving him, and joyfully obeying him. If Christ is these things, then these responses are the only logical and rational response. Everything else is insanity. Paul says, I appeal to you brothers watching me today, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is the response? Be reconciled to God and worship him as Christ exalted in you over all. I'm reminded of the final verse of Isaac Watts' wonderful hymn, When I Survey the Wonders Cross. These words, were the whole realm of nature mine, if I could give everything I have, that were an offering far too small. Listen, love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, demands my life, demands my all. My all, my all for him who is all, Jesus Christ, and who is over all. Amen, that's our call.